Well, we have been in a, uh, in a series for a few weeks now on the topic of the Holy Spirit. And so if you do have a Bible, um, please turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, again, if this is your first time in church, don't, don't worry. It's going to come up on the screen. You'll be able to follow along. As well, and what we have seen so far in this uh, in this series on the on the Holy Spirit is that the Christian life, the experience for the Christian, is not you know when you become a Christian, it is not merely the case that you have sort of formally acknowledged a set of beliefs, like you've given them a curt nod, and then you go and live a you know a good life. It's not that way. Really, what we see, although, you know, as Christians, yes, we we believe a certain set of things, and yes, we live a certain way, but actually, the expectation is that coming to Jesus and being saved, being saved by him, is a work, is a spiritual event that runs so much deeper than simply ticking off a bunch of intellectual ideas and then going and living a nice life. You know, to use to use Jesus' language, right? We are we are born again. We were once dead in our sin, and then God came to us and He made us alive. We were once dead and now we are alive. God's Spirit comes Himself and makes the believer alive and new, a new creation. And then the Holy Spirit doesn't just go, okay, bye, I'm out of here, I've done my job, good luck. No, the Holy Spirit comes and he lives within us and he empowers us and helps us to live the life that we wish we could, but we don't have the power in and of ourselves to do. We looked at that last week, didn't we? The, the Christian life, um, the, the term of living life in the Spirit, one where the believer finds themselves over time just, I'm starting to grow kind of spiritual fruit of love and, and, and peace. And oh, well, there's, there's some self-control. I'm just growing that. And they all, they all in time come as the Spirit grows them in our lives. That's what we looked at last week. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is what the Christian life looks like and feels like or does in time as that fruit grows. And this week, I I wanted to take just one of those fruits of the Spirit that, in in just my own observation, I think can be lacking among uh, Christians in our culture today. Now, I'm certainly not saying, oh yes, those Christians, those Christians out there, they're the ones who who are not doing very well at this. No, actually, just in my own life, I'm looking at this particular fruit of the Spirit this morning and going, goodness, I really want more of this in my life. I see there's a, there may even be a lack. You know, if, if here's what, here's what the, the life of the person who gets up on a Sunday morning and preaches is like, okay? So in the middle of the week, you know, you're, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to write something. And you open the, the text that we're going to preach from and we read it. And the first thing we open the perfect word of God is that we feel, oh gosh, I'm not very perfect. I am not like the perfect word of God. I am seeing things um, in in myself that are lacking. And that is certainly what my experience, maybe more so than other weeks, um, has been like this week. Because this morning, the particular fruit of the Spirit that I want us to, in particular, inspect from different angles is the fruit of joy. 
And so we are going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you could um, turn there if you haven't yet already. Um, And the words will appear on the screens beside me. Let us read from verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of fruit and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit And with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul here Um, He talks about this joy of the Holy Spirit being present with this Christian church. And so I want to talk about joy this morning because who doesn't want more joy in their lives? Not a single hand has gone up. That is good. That is a good thing. How does following Jesus then fit with joyfulness? Now I know, right, there can be a little bit of a, of a pushback, if you like, on this subject because, I mean, what we're dealing with here, when we start talking about joy, is we are dealing with feelings. And some of us are quite suspicious about the idea of, and maybe, maybe we're uncomfortable with the idea of talking about feelings. Or perhaps it's just the feeling of joy, and that's specifically the one that we get a bit suspicious, especially any sort of talk that sort of goes in the direction of, we need to feel more joy. Right? We might be suspicious about that. There may be a few different reasons why, that, why we might have that suspicion. And, and to be honest, I, totally, some, I don't think they're silly reasons at all. In fact, some of them I really understand. I mean, let's, let's talk about some of these suspicions. Here's one. We may have a suspicion that talking about feelings like the feeling of joy isn't worthwhile because it's too, it's too subjective, really. It's too experiential. And as soon as we start talking about subjective and experiential feelings, there's this danger, I suppose, that we may fall into inauthenticity. Of, of kind of manipulating our own feelings or having our feelings manipulated by some inspiring person and, and feeling like we have to put on a show a bit. That's not, and we, we might not want to do that. And you know what? I totally get that because, to be honest, there is this danger here. I mean, let me just describe the sort of joy that I'm not talking about. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been around church for a while, you have met... The, the, sort of, the sort of Christian who is just really happy all the time. 
They're just chirpy and bubbly, and there's this massive grin on, on their face. And you might be like, I'm actually not quite sure that's real. I'm, they, can't, they can't be that happy all the time. Listen, if this is you, if you're like, I'm this chirpy, bubbly, listen, that, that's, that's fine. But we've all, I, I think we've probably met that person where... You're kind of wondering, is this, is this a performative sort of joy? Is there, is there this sense that if I am to be joyful like they are, I kind of have to do the same thing and plaster a smile on, on my face? And you think, that's actually quite a scary face, Matt. I think you should probably stop with that about now. I remember someone once... Um, Said to me, they were, I, they were, they were asked, like, why, why are you so happy all the time? It's almost a bit kind of <laughs> accusatory. Why are you so happy all the time? And they just said, well, you know what? I, I, I just, I want to be happy all the time so that to, to other people, so that when they see that and they ask me that question, I can say, you know what? I'm happy all the time because Jesus is great. And I'm sure there are really, really good intentions in that, but I, I would look at that and just go, I'm not sure there's anything in there that, to, to me at least, is particularly attractive. Because if it is just a, I want to look happy so that other people are attracted, well, it's, there's, there's not much that's attractive about faking it. We all want, don't we, the genuine fruit of the Spirit, we were talking last week, you can't summon this up from within and, and, and go, I'm going to be joyful. That's, that's not the genuine fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, I want the genuine fruit of the Spirit because anything else will not do me good. See, the message today is not, come on church, let's be a bit happier. Come on, do a, do a bit more of a, you know, smile a bit more. That's not what I want this message to be. This is not about a a superficial, performative, kind of surface-level, pretend joy that doesn't go deeper than our brains. See, Paul here in chapter 1, he's thanking God for this church in, in the Greek city of Thessalonica because God has very clearly been doing some pretty amazing things among them. And one of the things that Paul is writing to the, these Christians and he's particularly happy with them. He's particularly, he's rejoicing seeing what God has done there is that they have, they have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And the striking thing is, in doing this, this has not made their lives easier. They haven't just come to God and then everything's been made easy and lovely. In fact, the opposite has taken place and their lives are far harder than they would have been beforehand. And that's often the way it goes. And here's the striking thing is that Paul here writes that they received the word in much affliction. If you go on reading this, this letter in First Thessalonians, you, you, you start to find that these, these Greek people to whom Paul is, is writing have, have become Christians and they are being very badly persecuted for it. There is, there is a great deal of hardship that they encounter. And it's all because of their newfound faith. The, the striking thing about this is that the description of them, even as they received the word in much affliction, is that they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you have much affliction and you have joy. <laughs> Two things that you would not necessarily expect to find together, right? 
Surely, if you are experiencing suffering and persecution and difficulty and hardship or or much affliction, even as Paul puts it, that ought to immediately, very quickly at least, snuff out any sort of happier feelings and and overshadow your day-to-day life. Surely that's what happens. And yet, when life is, is really tough for these Thessalonian Christians, these brand new Christians, what it is that Paul sees in their, in their lived Christian experience is joy. Sure, surely that performative, superficial, surface level cheeriness that we were just talking about is not it would not survive at all in the in the situation the Thessalonian church were going through no no what what we find when we open the bible and we start to talk and we start to see the the joy that the christian is is to use a word, sort of supposed to be experiencing. Well, it, it's so much more substantial. It's so much more, it runs far deeper such that when there is difficulty, when there is suffering and hardship, the joy still remains. That's the sort of joy that the Thessalonian church knew. To be honest, church, that's the kind of joy that I want to know all the more. don't know about you. So one, that's one suspicion, that when we talk about joy, it, it, are we just going to be a bit inauthentic and smile a bit more? No, that, no that, that's not what the kind of joy. The, it's not that the bar is set down there. Actually, what we see when we read the Bible about joy is that the, the bar for what proper Christian joy is, is, is sky high. But another suspicion that we may have when we talk about feelings like joy is that, well, isn't doing that a little bit unintellectual? I mean, this is Ottawa, after all, and we like reason, we like order, subjective experiences, eh, not so much. Right? Only in Ottawa can people get together and open a pub called Beerocracy. Like, that only happens anywhere else in the world. They'd be like, so you, you want to name a pub on a on a on a pun on the word bureaucracy. You're mad. You're crazy. In Ottawa, fantastic. The civil servants, they all love that. If you're new to Ottawa, that's the kind of level of nightlife experience that we have to offer, apparently. See, what we, what we see in First Thessalonians, though, is not a bunch of Christians that have thrown their thinking brains away for some ecstatic spiritual experience and actually twice Paul says that they received the word in other words they they heard this message that Jesus came and lived the perfect life and died on a cross and then rose again you know rose to life Jesus is not dead and now he 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 he's exalted in the heavenly places and if you call upon his name then what he has done will be given freely to you this gift of grace they have wrestled with that message they have received the word and thought through the truth of that and they've thought it through and they've, they've accepted it in spite of the suffering that was going to come their way because of it. But Paul also makes it clear that it's not purely, for the Thessalonian church, an intellectual exercise. So he, sa- he says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction. See, Paul is sure that 
This church, they have been chosen by God because of the evidence that the gospel message of Jesus didn't just come to them on word, but came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit. It's not like the Thessalonians went to a lecture, sat down and noted things, and then got up and, and went away. It's, there's, there's something actually of a, of a spiritual event and an experience here. And the end result of whatever that is, is that they, there, is, there is a full conviction that doesn't get shaken when things get really tough and really hard. See, Christianity for this church is not just purely an intellectual undertaking. Instead, there, is, there has been power. The power of God, the very presence of God has been at work within this church and full conviction is the fruit. We mustn't Think to ourselves that any experience of God, any feeling of his love or his presence is kind of lesser than our thinking. Oh, the, the feeling stuff, it's a bit base, right? It's a bit, you know, if you're... No, no, I, I, I like to think things through. Well, we've, we've got to be careful because that's certainly not how Christians throughout church history have operated. You want to talk about intellectuals? Let's, let's, talk, let's take Blaise Pascal, right? So French philosopher, mathematician, Pascal's triangle, he's an inventor, he's a Christian. One of those, one of those crazy polymath people. And when Blaise Pascal died in 1662, what they found is that Blaise Pascal had stitched within his coat this message um, and what he had done over his life is whenever he had got a new coat, he would unstitch this message from the old coat and stitch it in to his new coat. And it was something that he had never told anyone at any moment. And this is what it read. It read this. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, Feast of St. Clement. From about half past ten at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. This, this polymath guy, this guy with a brain bigger than any of ours, has what I suppose we might put language to it like um, a, a religious experience that so moved him, so deeply brought him certitude and joy and peace in the true and living God. Uh, and Pascal has this kind of deep two-hour-long experience of the love and the presence of God that he, it was so big for him, so shocking as it were that he could not bring himself to tell anyone for the the entirety of his life he couldn't bring himself to put that into words instead he writes it down sews it into his coat and keeps it next to his heart until he dies and it's only then when he's when he when he's died does someone go oh look this is this has happened so it's not just blaise pascal i mean take Thomas Aquinas. Few people have shaped theological thought like Thomas Aquinas has. And Thomas Aquinas one day attends Mass on a Wednesday night and has such an experience of the presence of God and the love of God that when he leaves Mass that Wednesday night, he refuses to finish his life's work, the Summa Theologica. He doesn't go back and touch it. 
because of the experience that he had that night. Now, I don't, I don't care how intellectual you think you are. Listen, you're not Blaise Pascal. You're not Thomas Aquinas. No one's going to be reading your thoughts on stuff a thousand years from now. And what I don't want us to do as a church is, is for us to pretend that anything other than intellectual reasoning isn't just, oh, that's not worth considering. Because what we might end up doing is shutting ourselves off from what God might want to do in bringing things, truths that have been in our heads for maybe years, perhaps decades, and bringing them down into our hearts so that we feel the truth of them and they end up doing us good. That's what God wants to do. I don't want to say that's what God might want to do. No, that is what God wants to do. And you know what I think? I, you know, I think the world has enough miserable Christians. Listen, I don't say that lightly because I, I can be that miserable Christian. I can be that guy who says, yes, God has done everything for me, everything I need, but it doesn't, it's not in my feelings and it never certainly reaches my face. I don't want to be like that. I just want to check how much of this do we know of the joy of God? And do we, as a church, for you, Christians in the room, how much of this do you want to know more of? Of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. Are we open? Are we more than open to seeing that fruit grow in our lives and in our expression of faith for that to change the way we stand and sing together for that to 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 change even how we how we pray for how we do life group and, and so on and if the answer to those questions all those questions is yes and i hope it is yes because otherwise there's no point in me continuing i may as well just go okay step down but i think it is because we do who doesn't want more joy of god the real stuff in their lives where can you get a joy a joy of the thessalonian quality that isn't immediately snuffed out when difficulty and suffering comes well i think the quality and as it were the quantity of the 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 joy that we experience directly flows from the hope that we are living in, the hope that we are spending time in. You know, I, I, I learned this early on in my, in my church experience. I don't know what your, if you've been a Christian for, for most of your life, or at least in church most of your life, I don't know what your um, first memory of church was. was, was. Um, I'll tell you what some of mine were. So... Um, I grew up in England. This church had been started by this guy called Don Smith. And here's the thing you need to know about Don Smith is Don Smith was really intense. Oh, there he is. Um, I didn't know we were going to have a picture. That's actually kind of a little bit scary because this, this was him, okay? You might think, that, yeah, look at him. He doesn't look that scary. Don Smith was scary. Don Smith was intense because he really loved God. And he loved his church, and he didn't want any Christian missing out on what they could have in God, okay? 
I'll give you an example. This is the sort of thing that, that he would do. So um, the way a church service would look um, back then was the first half was singing, second half was preaching from the Bible, okay? But sometimes we didn't end up in the second half because halfway through a song, Don Smith would jump up, Bible in hand, and, and you can just uh, um, imagine, like Kelly's about to go into the, the chorus, and Don Smith just goes, shh, and just goes, so this is what God wants to say to us right now. And, uh, and everyone is still standing, and a sermon begins, and like over the course of 10 to 15 minutes, everyone goes, I guess we should just sit down for this. <laughs> and the worship band is like, Okay, and and then then it's then it's just spontaneous sermon in the moment for the rest of the service. Okay, and you think, well, that that's that sounds intense, but it doesn't necessarily sound scary. Okay, or this is you know I wouldn't remember that as a child, but here's what I do remember: is that sometimes he would be so worked up in the spirit, so worked up with this thing that he really wants his church to know that this distance between him and the front row would be too great for him to take, and so he would just get down. And okay, right, I am going to commit to this. This is going to get messy for sure. Because <laughs> this is what he would do. He would really want to start preaching at people. And so he would just start, he would just start get, getting out into... Rich, if I break my leg doing this, you've got to... It's on you. It's on, oh, it's on me. Okay. <laughs> no finishing the sermon. He would just start preaching at people. And, and sometimes, you know, this is the really scary thing, is that he would actually just start asking people questions and you actually expect like an answer. It's so scary. Here's, in the moment, here's the thing I'm most enjoying about doing this right now is that a lot of the first few rows haven't even bothered to turn around. They're like, he's gone. I don't know if this is innovation or a mistake. He'll probably come back. If you're lucky, I'll come back. And so you'd think he, he would just get out into the middle to start preaching at people. And one of the questions he would ask, what would be this guy so loving his church and not wanting his, his, his church people to miss out on? What would be the question that he would want to ask you very suddenly? Well, the question would be, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you are saved? That's a, a good question. And he would expect an answer from that, okay? And it's a good question because it's like, I, I know for me, oh, I change my mind on all sorts of things. I think and say one thing, and then the next day, I, I do the other thing. And so there might be, he might even see the little, Don Smith would notice a little sort of sweat drop running down your face, and you're like, how do I know I am a Christian? Well, he was going, well, you need to go to Galatians chapter 4. You need to go to Galatians chapter 4. This is what Rich was preaching a few, a, a, a few weeks ago. And, you know, there's, there's that bit in Galatians chapter 4 that says that um, the Spirit of God is sent by God into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And that's what he would say. You need to know that. Do you know that? Do you know that deep down? Do you have a sense from within you of the Spirit of God telling you who you are and what your identity is as a son of God. 
And so if you were to ask me, Matt, hey, how do you know you're Christian? How do you know you're saved? I would have to just say, because of my own experience of texts like this, I'd have to say, I just know. I just, I know I'm saved. Come on, Matt, how do you, how do you really know? I just, I just do. I just do. And then just when you thought you were off the hook, Don Smith would spin around and ask you another question. He'd say, okay, that's all very well. You may know you're a Christian now. How do you know you're going to be a Christian tomorrow morning? How do you know? And sometimes he would really want to preach at the people in the back row. And he would come over and start, you know, <laughs> you think, oh, this is my first time at church. I don't, know, I don't know the answer to any of these questions. Why are you asking me? How do you know you're going to be a Christian tomorrow morning? Because again, you change your mind all the time. You don't know what you're going to believe. How do you know you're going to be a Christian in 10 years' time, in 50 years' time? You would say, ah, oh, well, you need, to go to, you need to go to Romans now. You need to go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where it says this, For I am sure, are you sure? Are you sure of this? Are you sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know that? Are you sure of that? Because that is a truth that only the Holy Spirit can come and take deep within you to be sure of that. See, that is the hope that we have. Because it's true, you know what? I'm, I'm fickle, I'm faithless at times. No, constantly. That's me. And it's also true of you as well. Therefore, the only way that I know I'm still a Christian tomorrow morning or in 10 years' time or in 15 years' time is if God's hold on me oh, is far tighter than my hold on him. And that's the sort of truth that only the Holy Spirit can bring. And listen, when, when that truth gets deep, what that brings in the life of the Christian is this deep security of this, like, I am, I am not going to be left. Yes, I am rubbish, but my hope is not in me at all. It's not really anything to do with me. It's about what Jesus has done and this salvation that is continuing. Where on earth am I in my notes? There's a security here that God is not going to kick you out of his family. God is so much better than that. You know, that's the sort of thing that wicked people do, but God is far more loving than you and I. He has a hold on me that is far greater than my hold on him. It's not simply enough for God that we know in our heads this. It's not simply enough. He wants us to know. You know, Don Smith would get super intense and a little bit scary. And sometimes he would get you one-on-one as well. And he would ask you those questions. And you really couldn't escape. And Don Smith, he asked those questions because he so wanted his church not to miss out on the security and the hope that really is felt and lived and changes the good days and the bad days. And if Don Smith felt that for his church... How much more does the love in Heavenly Father want that for his children to know who they are and to know where they're going? To, to really feel, feel the love of God poured into our hearts by the Spirit. 
And there's an awe and there's a wonder that follows when we're amazed by the, you know, the fact that we're spiritually alive at all. Amazed that we're recipients of this grace at all. And yeah, joy as well. See, the amount of hope that we are living in is going to correspond to the amount of joy that we end up experiencing as the Holy Spirit grows that fruit in our lives. That is what I see when Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. He says, you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, Paul is seeing, he's simply, he's not like teaching here, he's simply observing. Listen, Thessalonian church, do you see what's going on? You, you have turned from idols, the, the dead false gods, to the true and living God, and you, there, there's hope there. There's a hope that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he is a living hope. He is an exalted hope. He is up there interceding for his people, and he is alive, and your life and your liveliness is wrapped up in, in, in the risen Savior. You know, what, what is it that Paul says? You know, to wait for his Son from heaven who, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's this expectation, there's this looking forward, there's a looking beyond even the circumstances that are going on right now for the Thessalonian church that is difficulty and hardship and persecution, and to look above that to the day when Jesus comes back. To the day when Jesus comes and wipes every tear from our eyes and makes all things new and death is swallowed up in victory. That is what the Thessalonian church are looking at. And Paul is going, this is amazing. This is incredible. This is evidence that the God, has, the God of the universe and the God of life has done something in you. Paul thinks this way. Here's what he writes a few years later to the Christian church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we do not lose heart. Why don't we lose heart? Why are we not to lose heart tomorrow or 10 years from now or 50 years from now? We do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, Paul here, he's, he's not diminishing suffering. He's not going, Thessalonians, Corinthians, you're, just, you're, you're not really suffering. No, Paul knows suffering. He's been beaten up. He's been shipwrecked a bunch of times. He's had stones thrown at him. He's, he ends up in prison and in the end executed. Like This is a guy who knows suffering more than many of us ever will. And what does he say of all of that? He, he says, it is light, momentary affliction. How on earth is it possible for anyone to look at all of that and go, light, momentary affliction? I don't know what you are suffering right now in a room like this. If we were to put all of our difficulties here at the front, there would be a lot. And we'd go, wow, that, that, is, that is hard. There are hard things in this room. He's not diminishing, Paul, any of this by saying, ah, it's not really hard. What he's putting, what he's merely doing, is he's, he's putting it next to it, the future hope, the eternal the, the unseen. Every Christian's 
destiny purchased by the blood of Jesus. When Jesus goes to the cross, what he wins for you in your place and then gives to you freely is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is why Paul says to the Corinthian church, this is why we don't lose heart. Do you you see now, this is not a call this morning. Come on, congregation, get a bit happier. Plaster a smile on our face. If we tried to do that, you know what? We would be missing out on something far greater. This is not a, a call to chase spiritual experience for spiritual experience's sake. No. Instead, what I want us to do and to continue pursuing is getting better at looking beyond the present experience to the future hope of glory, to look to identity, to look to that day when we see Jesus face to face, when he will wipe every tear, and we will see what right now we only know a bit of, which is the weight of glory and everything that we have, our inheritance in Christ Jesus. And as we, as we do that, what we're going to do in, in just a moment is we are going to stand and sing. And I want us, as we come back into a time of just sung worship, is to do so with an attitude that is just, God, I want to see what Jesus has done. Holy Spirit, would you, would you show me more of Jesus? Would you show me how glorious this is? Show me, test, tell me, Holy Spirit from within, cause me to say even more, Abba, Father, that we would know as a church just who we are in Jesus. Let's ask God, the Spirit of God, to cause joy to rise within.